on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, your science on a Sunday. Now, where would you rather be right now? I bet at home you're locked down. You'd want to be maybe in the Mediterranean, eating Mediterranean food, looking at the Mediterranean sites. Well, the good news is you can eat Mediterranean food, and we have some fine condiments to help us along this morning here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, Brittany Harradin is a... uh, Oh, PhD researcher at the University of Canberra. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. <laughs> and uh, an old favourite. I, oh, I think you qualify as a friend of Fuzzy, uh, <laughs> uh, Professor uh, uh, Nenad Nomovsky. How are you going, Rod? Good morning, Nenad. Uh, good to have you back on again. Now, the Mediterranean diet, uh, Brittany, that's something that you're researching. And let's just start off with a really basic question. What is the Mediterranean diet? Yes. um, So the Mediterranean diet is basically a lot of unprocessed foods. So, you know, your your grains, um, lots of fruit and vegetables, um, nuts, seeds, and they have... um, minimal um, fats like oh, dairy fats, um, cheeses, meats. They eat meats um, probably once a week, around once a week. And pasta? Yeah, pasta gra- grains as yeah. well and um, lots of extra virgin olive oil. Ah, so isn't uh, virgin olive oil a kind of fat? I was so I'm sort of conscious when I'm cooking food and I make myself lunch and I fry up uh, a little bit of halloumi. Yep. And uh, what, is yeah, is olive oil a kind of fat? Yes. So um, olive oil is a kind of fat, but it's um, classified as one of the good fats. So it's an unsaturated fat. And, um, and it tastes good. Yes, it does taste yep. good. <laughs> <laughs> so saturated and unsaturated. So it's a vegetable-based fat rather than a meat-based one. Well, there's, uh, sorry, Rod, I just kind of feel I need to butt in from the food science perspective. Um, when, when we talk about the fats, um, in particular the olive, in particular the olive oil, um, it has always been classified as uh, one of those, um, fats that is uh, beneficial for a number of different purposes from the health perspective. So it's been classified as a type of fat that has been associated with um, beneficial health effects uh, in reduction of a cardiovascular disease, uh, in reduction of um, some of the certain comorbidities, uh, but also in improvements in um, in other beneficial health aspects. So I shouldn't get too stressed when I'm cooking. I'm, I don't cook at a really high temperature. I think you've told me yeah. in the past that it has a sl- uh, what's it, a lower smoke. Uh, lower, it has got a lower smoke point, um, and obviously, as soon as you come up to the level when it has got a smoke point, it will start deteriorating. So, once you, um, with most of the fats, is when you heat them up, they will start uh, producing the smoke on on top. Um, once you come up to that level, the temperature that it has been reached is usually about 100 and, uh, 170, 180 degrees Celsius. That comes up to the smoke point, and it can 
really be if you push it over it comes into the flashpoint and that is really undesirable fact when when everything it's ignites start to burn that's right when things start to burn and when really oil has got it's got so much of the uh, heat energy in it that it will enlight itself up right. um, so we're trying to keep the certain types of fats and certain types of oils on a cooler temperatures and from the Mediterranean diet perspective it's it's from the Mediterranean region. It's real interesting because they use the um, well. When I was over there and when I was growing up through that in that region, we used to use the olive oil quite differently to what we are doing it now in here in Australia. Oh, and that would be and, how? and that would be that we would, for example, put olive oil on the salads, or if you cook something, we would only use the olive oil to marinate it. Uh, but then once the produce is cooked, we would drizzle it over a top rather than cook with it. Oh, so you tend not to fry with it. That's right. We tend not to fry with it. We fry with it only if it's really a necessary or if you have got well, an you, ample supply. So would you would you recommend, so when I make my lunch this week, yep. that I just use a normal vegetable oil and for, for the frying part of it and not the olive oil? Well, that that's a beauty of it because now there is um, what are called the EVOs, extra virgin olive oils, uh, EVOO, um, and these type of olive oils and that are cold press, first press produced olive oil, they have actually been treated in that manner that they can sustain uh, relatively higher temperatures now. So you can still use nowadays in a relatively in the past. Uh, maybe two to three years, um, this new developments of processing the olive oil has come up onto the market where it still retains all the good qualities of the oil itself, still remains quite healthy and has got all the beneficial aspects, but you can use it in a pur- for the purposes of frying. Okay, I don't use a lot of it. So, so Brittany, just go back to the nature of the Mediterranean diet and you gave us a brief description of it. What's the balance of the various food components, such as the, the fiber, the, the vegetable, the carbohydrate, the meat, the protein versus the... So is there, what's the balance of those things in a Mediterranean diet? Um, so they eat quite a lot of the green leafy vegetables. Um, they eat a lot of grains, so, you know, your chickpeas, um, your pulses, um, kidney beans, red kidney beans, and things like that. I think in varying proportions, um, and their meat they might eat, you know, once or twice a week. Um, so, you know, your red meat, your lamb, your pork, things like that. Um, and then cheeses they also eat in moderation, so not, well. not too much, not too much cheese, right? Okay. Uh, now I'm told I, I heard a visiting professor who we interviewed a while ago, Nenad, uh, and he was saying that we don't actually eat the Mediterranean diet anymore, or people generally don't. Is that is that right? Yeah, um, unfortunately that is that is correct. So basically, the tri- traditional, typical Mediterranean diet that we um, that we would really like to thrive to, that we're really uh, trying to point out to, has been designed. Well, it's been evaluated back in the fifties and sixties. Um, so you know, from that time, there was a quite a lot of adaptation to the regular life that we are having, and we are not really adhering to the Mediterranean diet. Or it would be a very rare that you would have some of the households that would adhere to med diet. Um, we, what we used to do is, um, as Britt was saying, um, it, once a week they would have a meat. Um, and that was uh, literally that dish would be made up to last. Um, so instead of having uh, a typical pork, or if you're looking at some of the other foods uh, that have been pre- created in that region, let's say um, a, a pasta dish, 
um, the meat that has been used in a pasta dish um, would have been previously cooked, prepared, and that would have been sort of a main meal, and then pasta was added to, as a fill-in. And I'm guessing that uh, generally as people become more wealthy, they tend to eat more meat, right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And because the meat over there um, and meat has been traditionally seen as one of the processes of, of a wealth of a person. So, you know, I am quite capable of slaughtering that cow or a sheep or a goat or whatever it is. So I'm that wealthy that I can slaughter that animal um, and I can eat it rather than waiting on that animal to, to yeah. provide me with the produce. And in some cultures, I believe that it's actually a sign of wealth to have fat kids. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I, because I, I've got enough spare i i am that wealthy that i can afford to to be fat and also i think about table manners that it's good to belch yeah it, it is and it's like and when we talk about a mad region it's quite often when we talk about a mad region quite often we talk about um you know the countries like um, portugal spain italy france uh, croatia greece um, but we also forget that some of the countries of the northern Africa are also part of the Mediterranean. Yeah. And from that perspective, obviously, in you know, parts of northern Africa, they don't have much of the uh, fertile land um, that they can actually grow the fruits and vegetables. And they do use the processed foods. They do use uh, quite a lot of uh, dried meats, uh, dried vegetables, dried lentils, uh, things like that within their, within their concept of a diet. I, so it's a, sorry, I, right. I, th I think what we're saying, though, is that your diet is part of your culture. It's not just stuff you just drop onto your plate and then eat it, it, it's in the whole package of how you you live with your family, your friends your neighbours and the economy I suppose now, now Brittany you're doing research on uh, the Mediterranean diet and it's a big topic uh, can you give me a, a little description of what you, you've just started you're in your first year I think yes yep yep um so I'm looking at different dietary patterns and the effects on cognition and the mental health side of things. Um, so how those those foods affect, you know, how people function on a daily basis. That's that's a fairly big, broad category. So cognition, mental health. Can we maybe define a little bit what what do you mean by cognition? Because I just think your ability to do crosswords or the Sudoku <laughs> or something like that, but it's it's actually a lot more than that, isn't it? Yeah. Also, um, within that, you know, anxiety and depression. Um, so, yeah. if you have a, a poor diet, you you might get more anxiety, more depression. Yeah, potentially. That's what I'm going to be looking at, seeing, yeah. Are there other studies that show that link? Yes, there is quite a few studies um, that have not been done in Canberra region, but um, overseas they've been done and they have shown that, yes, a poor quality diet does show that, you know, you do have an increased risk of depression, anxiety, um, a poor cognitive function. Do we, do we have a very good understanding of what the link is about why that would be? Um, not, not entirely, <laughs> um, but some studies have shown that a diet that's higher in fruit and vegetables, um, you know, your extra virgin olive oil, um, less processed foods, less of your meats and things like that, um, that potentially is what. Okay. And but it must be it must be a complicated equation because it's so tied up with a person's lifestyle, how much they 
uh, exercise? Are they, do they, are they sedentary? Do they have yeah. good, strong social network and so on? How do you tease out the effects of diet amongst all of that? I mean, that, that is one of those really interesting points, Rod, because um, from, from that perspective, it's, we always see it as a bi-directional thing. So uh, when we talk about a cognition, um, diet does influence how is one behaving and uh, what kind of a health that can actually bring, what type of nutrients you're going to bring to, um, to your body, what type of nutrients you're going to bring uh, particularly to the brain and how is that going to, how is that going to affect your uh, normal functioning under quotation marks normal. But it also has got, um, the other way around is also the, the type of behaviors and, uh, some of, um, the problems that are from the, a mental health perspective are going to also influence what kind of a force you're going so to So there's a feedback loop going on. Here. Absolutely. So uh, how, how successful you are in life is strongly equated to your cognitive ability? Well, it's it's more sort of, it's we really have to look at from the social perspective as well. So socioeconomic status of people has been traditionally seen as one of the major drivers on a good quality uh, that we are, that we can see in a population uh, of the food, food intake. So in, in the other words, what I'm trying to say is that um, it's one way is to say that everyone has to eat good, everyone has to eat green leafy vegetables and, uh, you know, unprocessed foods and uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and extra virgin olive oil and all that. But the, the point that we really also have to take into consideration is, is the population able to purchase those food products? Because they are also quite an expensive initially. Um, overall, over a long period of time, um, there are definitely economical benefits. Uh, because you're investing in yourself, you're investing in health. So later on in life, you're not going to um, fork out for a medical bills or a visit to a doctor or um, all the other uh, negative effects that we can see from the ultra-processed foods. So your, your diet is strongly related to your social uh, economic status. Absolutely. Um, and and you also, from the Mediterranean region perspective as well, is that that region traditionally is not wealthy. We do see that. So, you know, when you're growing up on, on the terrains that are not really a fertile or that have got a very scarce amount of a land, you're trying to utilize the products to the best that you potentially can. Um, so even the foods that we have traditionally seen here in Australia as a weeds, um, over there they have been consumed for hundreds of years. Um, you know, fennel, only fennel has been consumed in Australia for the past 30 years. Um, and it has been seen as one of those, you know, under quotation marks, superfoods. Same as a rocket, same as, um, yeah. kale. I mean, the explosion of kale from a couple of years back, you know, everybody has been using a kale. Um, and it has been seen as, uh, you know, the superfoods. I don't really don't like the term of a superfoods. Um, but over there, which has been consumed for a number of years. Yeah, so the, the, your social economic status can go both ways, right? So you might be more wealthy, but you might be eating more processed foods, more meats, uh, and your, the balance, like you were saying, Brittany, the balance between the amount of vegetables, pulses, and so on that you eat. Now, just can we talk a bit about how you're going about your research? What's your approach to pulling? I know it's fairly early stage, but it must be quite a daunting prospect to, to figure out how you're going to do something like this. Yes, I'm still trying to get my head around the whole research <laughs> topic. Um, but I guess I'll be looking at, you know, interviewing um, participants and, getting an idea of, you know, how they've been eating over a certain period of time um, 
and then doing questionnaires and assessments on, you know, their cognition, you know, their levels of anxiety, their depression. Um, I think environment's also a big factor. So we'll probably be looking at environment and trying to compare that with, you know, maybe the Mediterranean region, you know, their environment to um, Australia's environment um, and how we socially eat. And so you've got multiple complicated factors to deal with. So the diet or nutrition on its own is really difficult, I think. And then you're putting on top of that a person's behaviour and their, their social situation. Like, how do you get a person to tell you what they actually eat? I mean, I mean if you ask me, I, I could, uh, oh, I think I know what you want to say. Well, I eat the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we have got a um, questionnaire and it's got a lot of foods, different foods on there and, you know, the frequency and how how many times a week they might eat cheese and what sort of cheese do they eat, what brand of cheese do they eat, um, just to get that. Um, That's quite, de- quite detailed. Yes, yes, they are quite detailed <laughs> assessment and questionnaires. And whether complete. you're grazing, snacking on foods during the course of the day, uh, gee, I don't know if I can even remember what I ate yesterday for, for a large <laughs> part. So. Yeah, but what, the, what getting a somebody's diet um, getting somebody's that is really hard uh, to actually get an accurate representation of what who eats what, um, unless you really have got them in a very controlled environment where you know and controlled environments can quite often be seen such as retirement villages, nursing homes, prisons, uh, childcare centres, schools, um, boarding schools, etc., where the food has been provided to the participants, where the food has been provided to an individual. Um, what makes it a really complex for, for Britain studies and for our study overall, but also what makes it a so unique is that we are looking at multiple factors. So we are looking not only at what individual is eating, but also how often they are eating. Um, what is when do they when is their last meal? So you know, do they finish eating a food at let's say eight o'clock in the evening, or they finish the food eating at eleven o'clock? And we look at that uh, intermittent fasting period. And yes, I managed to say that word fully on the radio. I always get confused. I can't pronounce that intermittent very well. Um, so we look whether uh, they are between 8 a.m. Oh, sorry, 8 p.m. and 7 a.m. So what is that time gap overnight? Or do they snack in the night quite often? Do they snack in the evening quite often before they go to bed? And what do they snack on? Well, that, that's a, a, another topic, isn't it, is uh, the frequency of food and, and do you eat big meals? I think we might cut to a little song break and I have a little thing lined up for us here. Not food related and some of us might remember that fairly gritty movie uh, Deliverance a few years <laughs> ago with a fairly brutal scene in it. But it's actually a pretty good movie and I like the dueling banjos here on Fuzzy Logic, and we're talking to PhD researcher Brittany Harridan and Nenad Nabowski, both from the University of Canberra. Now, uh, before the song, before the little bit of the dueling banjos, uh, Brittany, I was asking you about how you uh, how you go about a project like this, and you were saying you got surveys, you try and capture information about what the person's eating. And then how do you bring that data together? How do you know what the effect on cognition or mental health might be? Yeah, so I'll be evaluating that, but we also have um, access to studies that have been done in the Mediterranean diet on participants. Um, So I'll be 
comparing the Canberra region with the Mediterranean region and seeing, yeah, how... So the existing data you've got, you can use there? Yes, yeah. Now, I mentioned at the top of the program the plague and a lot of people are locked down and so on. Not doing too badly here in Canberra, but I understand you've been affected by this. Yeah, so we have been absolutely affected by this, um, especially from the perspective that um, obviously COVID has got an impact on everyone um, and we do have to follow the social distancing rules and all of the latest uh, government and um, um, advice and obviously the University of Canberra advices as well on how to conduct the research and how to conduct interviews um, from the safety perspective and that takes obviously the, the, the paramount step in, in designing this type of research and getting on ahead with this type of research. So um, due to all that, um, we actually had to postpone and we had to um, uh, delay the study that we are trying to do here in Canberra and ICT region. Um, and the overall aim of the study is to look at a nutrition and healthy aging trajectories in retirement living. Um, and before we actually kick off or before start talking about that study in a bit more detail, um, we do have access to some of the already collected information from our colleagues in, in Greece. Um, there were two very large longitudinal studies that have been conducted um, since um, early 2000, and they're still monitoring the people now. They're now in a wave three of the one of the studies. Well, this studying is part next of a very year. big uh, study, I think. Is it the ATHLOS project or related to that? That's right. It's related to the ATHLOS project, and, and the ATHLOS project is a consortium of different epidemiological studies that looks at uh, a number of different health parameters uh, and, uh, and the dietary intake um, of uh, several different regions. Um, in this particular project that we are working on, we are working on a combined data set of uh, two very large uh, studies uh, from the Mediterranean region. One of them is a MEDIS study, which is a Mediterranean island study, and the other one is an Attica study, which has been conducted in, in the Athens, so um, the region of Attica um, in the Athens. So um, they have con they have collected uh, over um, 4,000 participants, I think pretty close to 6,000. If I'm right, I'm just pulling a number on top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's about 6,000 participants overall that yeah. has been collected. And they have monitored them over a period of time. So they have monitored them in a, a several different waves, what they were called. Um, so same participants were recruited and uh, we're looking at the incidents in particular from the cardiovascular disease development and cardiovascular disease risk factors and how they related to the um, dietary intake, uh, how they re related to the proximity to the different um, restaurants, um, to the different uh, shops, to the grocery shops, how often were the people um, getting yeah, out of this? There's a lot of different dimensions. That is right. It's, so, uh, Brittany, this must have been a pretty uh, <laughs> depressing, uh, <laughs> difficult time for you. I mean, we're all going through the, the difficulty of the, 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 the plague right now. But what, what was your reaction when you realised this is what it was going to do to your research? Um, I think just going with the flow, I mean, you can't, you can't change the circumstances. But I guess as a researcher, you've always got to have a plan A and a backup plan B and C. Um, the whole alphabet of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so you're adaptable and you're with a great team. So you, you've yeah. just gone, well, we can't do it this way. We'll do it some other way. Uh, what what got you into this research? What's your background before now? 
Yes, so I was a clinical dietitian um, and I was working up on the um, central coast, um, working in the hospital. And what I found is a lot of my patients that were coming in, they had a lot of cognitive decline. And when I was assessing their diets, um, you know, they were pretty poor. You know, there was a lot of meal skipping, um, a lot of, yeah, just... A lot, a lot of saturated fats or the bad fats and so on? Uh, yeah, in, in some, um, but not all circumstances. Um, it was just, yeah, a lot of... Um, Do you think there were things like vitamin deficiency, lack of fibre? Definitely, a, lo- a lot of that. Um, you know, they would eat breakfast would be, you know, one piece of toast or half a piece of toast. And then they would say that their lunch was their biggest meal of the day. And, you so know, they're, they're actually malnourished. Yes, really? severely malnourished. Really? <laughs> and yes. And I wanted to link that in with um, how that affects their cognition. And as Nanab was saying before, you know, is it because they've got poor cognitive function that they're making poorer um, choices in food? Or is it the other way around? You know, they're poor choices in food leading to... Yeah, Yeah. yep. And I thought that would be really interesting to study. And having done my undergrad and master's degree in Canberra, I thought, why don't I come back to Canberra and conduct that sort of study and and see? So you managed managed to to reel back in... (laughs) You know, so we, we trained her first in the undergrad and in a postgrad, and then off she went and done a great work in a Gosford Hospital in a clinical setting, and then we managed to bring her back to Canberra and to start her studies um, with a more experienced uh, person in yeah, the first so year of her PhD. You, yeah, so you had some time out in the, dare I say, the real world, really. <laughs> well, you do too, of course, Dad, yeah. because you were a chef, I, I believe, and so on. But but that that real world experience now means you you feel more focused. You have a better clarity about what you would want from the research. Yeah, definitely. And I think working in the clinical setting, I can put a band aid on it, but I can't fix the problem. And I think you know, going into research, at least I can identify you know maybe some of the gaps in the areas that where I was working in and and contribute on a broader spectrum than just within the clinical setting. And right. And so you'll come up with some better ideas about how to improve nutrition in, in these sorts of people. Then how do you get people to adopt them? Because we talked about the fact that your what you eat is so much part of your social setting and your economic environment. How do you convince a person to improve their diet? Good, good question. Really hard. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, it's just you, you've got to be, you know, they've got to be strongly influenced by you and what you're saying, and and that comes with a lot of you know backing what you're saying up with evidence, evidence all the time. And and what is really interesting, Rod, is that here in Canberra we actually don't have enough information to find out what people are eating. Um, we do have information that is scattered, 
uh, scattered right around. So we know we can always pull the information out of how many restaurants we have or how many retirement villages we have or how many nursing homes and childcare centers, etc. It's a very narrow range. But right? it is a very narrow range, and we really don't have an in-depth information of what people are eating and how they're eating and what other types of behaviors they are bringing in with the foods. So we know that during this, you know, during this COVID situation. Everybody has gone into the home and um, we have been sourdough out. So <laughs> everyone has got a sourdough or a bread or a pastry or a pasta or something is happening in the house and the people are cooking. Um, and that poses an impact not only onto the dietary intake of what we are having now, but also is going to pose an impact on the dietary behaviors that we are going to see later on. Once this situation passes, and it will pass, it must pass. Um, so how do we actually adapt? Well, there's got to be a strong correlation between stress and food. So last time we were on air, then Ad, we talked about how you're feeling a bit depressed. You're, you, you, you rush into the kitchen, you know, hungry. What am I going to eat? And I have to confess, I ate two slices of bread and, and uh, marmalade yesterday, which I, I'm trying to keep it down to one per day at most. And, and you know, Rod, it's really important that as well is like what kind of foods we in. But I think that we really have to stop demonizing a particular food items. Mm. That is where we really have to move on. Yeah. And we have to stop saying that, you know, there is a good food and a bad food because all food is a good and all food can be bad. Um, so we really have to look at the quantities of the foods that we are having and the frequencies of the particular foods that we are well, having. Well, Brittany, do you think there's something in the idea that you frame things in a positive sense rather than as a negative? Yeah, definitely. I, as a dietitian, always say, you know, um, everything in moderation. You can have your chocolate and your cake, but as long as you're eating your fruit and your veggies and things like that. So it, it comes down to, yeah, the quantities that you're having those foods. Do, do you have some particularly particularly successful or unsuccessful people that you worked with? Tell me a good story and tell me a bad story. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, um, a good story? Um, you might have to come back to that. You might have to let me oh, think I'll of that it. for a second. Yeah. Well, I'll take that one on on notice. And uh, you, while we're on other topics, we can we can think about what that might be uh, here on Fuzzy Logic. Actually, we might just take a quick uh, music break. I think, and that'll give you time to think over that question, uh, Brittany. We're talking food, the Mediterranean diet, brain function. Our brains are working at two hundred miles now here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, with our guests uh, Brittany Harridan and Anad Damovsky from the University of Canberra. And here on Fuzzy Logic, a bridge over troubled water, and on the other side of the bridge, of course, is a uh, a fast food restaurant. And it's out there and chow down on some burgers, some meat, and... Uh, well, whatever makes you happy, but uh, we're talking nutrition here on Fuzzy Logic with Brittany Harridan, who's a PhD researcher at the University of Canberra, and Nanad Damovsky, who officially has the title of Friend of Fuzzy. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. Now, uh, during the uh, song break, it breached over troubled water, Brittany uh, Gave you a bit of time to think about a happy story and a not so happy story from your experience as a dietitian. Yeah, yep. So a um, happy story was this was working in the clinical setting, and I had a patient that had come in 
um, with a stroke. And I, when they initially came in, I had to enterally feed them, so through the tube. And then a couple of weeks later, um, I weaned them off the enteral feed and just started feeding them on a normal diet. And when speaking with them and assessing, you know, what their previous diet was before coming into hospital and having a stroke, um, what I noticed, there was a lot of high saturated fats. Um, So they were a a truck driver and they were living off, you know, cans of Coke um, and at the takeaway stores on the roads or the roadhouses, um, you know, they would have sausage rolls and meat pies and all sorts of foods like that. Um, so sitting down with them, um, they were really, you know, their attitude um, was positive in wanting to change their diet and improve what they were having. So I was able to make recommendations um, within, you know, on those roadhouses of what they might be able to ch- choose instead of a meat pie and sausage roll and, you know, reducing their their sugar intake with the cans of Cokes that they were living off. Um, so that was a positive story. Uh, but before you, you go on to the, the happy story, uh, oh, I'm really curious about you, you. You were feeding a person through a tube, right? Yes. What, what sort of stuff goes in the tube? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a formulated, um, well, it's a formula that comes in a bag and it's got all the nutrients. And so we calculate, you know, their energy and their protein requirements based off their height and their weight that they give us or the family might give us. So we actually feed them um, based off those calculations. So it's got all their fats, their proteins, all the vitamins and minerals, all within this. It looks like a milky base. Essentially, it's like a formula milk, but into the vein, right? Um, Not not milk, obviously, but yeah. Yeah, so into the stomach. So through the nose and straight into the stomach. Um, Generally, if they're really critically ill, we'll go through the vein, but that's quite a risky They can't feed themselves. Ah, okay. Well, after you've told the happy story, we're going to talk about a product that we've got sitting on the table here, but uh, we'll we'll do that in a moment because maybe that has some parallels to what what you've been saying. And just a quick thing, too, about the truck drivers. Now, my cousin was an interesting character. He was an ambulance driver, amongst other things, but... He started up a program working with truck stops or roadside stops because he knew the trucking community were eating the sort of foods that you were talking about, and he was concerned about how he could improve that. Now, I haven't seen him for a long time, so I don't know what happened to it, but it's an interesting idea, maybe a future thing that you'd get involved with. So up and down the Hume Highway, the Princess Highway, uh, how, how do you make it easier for a truck driver to eat something better. Yeah, so I think it's just um, a bit of lack of knowledge of what to choose. You know, those places still do sell salads um, and healthy alternatives to just meat pies and sausages. And with truck drivers, you know, they're not just having the one meat pie or the sausage roll, you know, they're having the two or the three. So combining a meat pie with, you know, a salad is going to be better than having two meat pies and nothing else. So just making those sort of modifications. Okay. All right, now the uh, the other story. We're on to the not happy story, I think. The not happy story, yes. So working in an outpatient setting, 
um, we get lots of referrals from doctors that come through for these patients that might have, you know, high cholesterol or they might be overweight and need to reduce some weight um, for diabetes management or anything like that. And I had a particular um, patient who used to come in and they would see me on a regular basis. It was about once a month. And, you know, I'd, I would sit down with them. I'd go through their diet. And what I couldn't get my head around is every time they came in, they had this, you know, they had their food diary written out. And it was this perfect diet. And, the, you know, I couldn't fault anything in this perfect diet. And I was like you know, I, I can't work this out. You know, you're you're gaining weight based off the scales, but your diet just fits in really well. But they would still come back to me month after month and I couldn't really do anything from a dietitian's perspective to help them. And so they were getting really frustrated with me because they wanted to lose weight, but I was going off based off what they've written in their food diary. Um, so I think it also comes down to the patient needing to be honest with what they're actually eating and you can't come across as judgmental and say, well, no, I don't think this is what you're eating. Um, so I think that was a bit of a bad experience because you're there to want to help the person, but you can't help them if they don't want uh, to be. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. really, that's a really good story, Brittany. I like, I like that. I mean, it's a good not happy story. <laughs> But, but it really tells us something about, like uh, Nanad was saying earlier, that you don't want to demonise foods. So the person was basically being coached about what to tell you, about what they thought you wanted to hear. And I guess you're very aware of that in any data collection you do. We were talking earlier about how do you know what a person actually eats. Have you, have you tried something like uh, you get the mobile phone and just just take a, a, a photo of everything you eat during the course of a day? Yes, yeah, and I do have quite a few clients that used to do that for me and that was really good. And you see positive results when that happens. They'll take a photo of their meal, you get an idea of what they're eating, how much they're eating and you can make recommendations based off that. I, I, I did this myself uh, about a year ago, and I just took a photo. And I, I like photography, so I had to make them all arty <laughs> as well. But just the act of doing that made me more conscious of what I was eating. So, so I reflect on, and and I had a pretty damn healthy day, I have to say. But I, I suspect it, on another day, I wouldn't be quite so good. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Even, you know, patients that might have a dietitian appointment one week in advance, you know, they change their eating habits within that week. So then when they come to you, you know, it's like, oh, this is how I've been eating, but I've only been eating like this for, for a week. Prior to that, this is how I was eating. Yeah. So they do make those changes. And and it's really interesting that you're mentioning that, Rod, because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of apps available now on the market that they can actually take the photograph and kind of they can roughly estimate of what you're consuming over a period of a time. And it does have an influence on individuals' behavior. So from one perspective is uh, from the clinical aspect, uh, if we want if you if our uh, point is to change a person's um, food intake 
um, yes, by all means, that, that really means a lot. But from the research perspective as well is to establish the baseline, to find out what people are really eating. We, we really don't want to use these type of apps. We really rely on a people's honest answers to the questionnaires and, you know, dating back of how often would you have a milk and then provide some more insightful questions in actually trying to suss out um, what a person is really eating. Um, that, that, that's, uh, that, that kind of taps into something that I was thinking, but maybe a longer topic for another day. And that's oh, absolutely. But, uh, but no, it's interesting. M- mindful eating was what I was going to say. Yeah. You, I could see you're nodding with me. <laughs> Did you want to chip in on that? Yeah, there's a lot of research that's been done within that. Um, and mindful eating is about, you know, taking away those computer screens, the TV, you know, sitting at the d- dinner table, no phones, um, and, you know, Eating, eating slowly so you get that um, sensa- f- full sensation feeling, um, you know, taking regular breaks and sips of water between your meals, that's all. And do you, do you, as part of this, do you, with this mindfulness, you're, you're aware of your own body and and so I, I know what I, I try to do it a little bit and, and so you just hoe into a plate or something, you're hungry and, and down it goes and then you realise I'm probably actually... Full. I think is this true? There's about a twenty-minute delay between consuming yes. and yes. your sense of being full. That's right, because it takes some time for the food actually to get into the uh, into the small intestine and to register, and to, register to send right. a hormonal signal to the brain to say, "Hang on a second, you had enough. You you're you're full. You know what I mean." So uh, it uh, there is that a time delay from the food consumption until until your stomach really sends the the, the signaling to the brain saying so you had enough. Just wait a bit. And, and I, I'm a weird bloke. I enjoy a glass of beer. And I was telling my mates the other day we were having a glass, and I was saying, you know, every mouthful should be as good as the first one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't quite work, but, but you know when you are, it's a long, hot day and you've been out doing something physically active, and then you go, ah. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that doesn't touch the sides. With, it goes straight down. You're with yeah. friends. Now, the other thing that I did while I was out, I was out bush uh, camping in the scrub, and uh, my wife gave me a, um, a couple of, what do you call it, cartons of this uh, food. We're not going to mention the product name. Sure. But I wonder if you could pick that up, uh, Brittany or Nenad, and... and just sort of describe what what this what this is. Okay, so I'm going to start off first from the food science perspective, which is basically looking at why do we have this type of a food products out on the market. If I can get it out of the plastic, so um, obviously it is one of those um, food products. I'll it's, it's a smaller package. It's about a um, couple hundred, 250 mil package, um, and we are looking at it's a. Um, it's the it's aimed for a particular time of a day. So in this case, it's um, aimed for the mornings, um, and it's meant to provide um, something that would uh, pick you up, something that is going to provide you with to kick, uh, kick your day off. To kick your day off. So if you're a um, busy mom or a busy dad or a busy carer, that you can just basically pick it up off the shelf. You know, do the shake, 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 uh, stick a straw in it, and have it in a car on so the way to work. it's a substitute breakfast, or a kind of breakfast. It is a, that's right, it's a substitute for a breakfast. So the whole idea from the product development perspective is that it will target 
the individuals that the, are the you know busy, busy people. Um, skip it, breakfast and I'll have this. Instead. Skip breakfast and I'll have something like this. Something that um, I can feel good about. Something that is going to fill that overnight fast until I'm actually able to get into the office or until I'm able to get into the shop and buy now, something. Can you, Nanette, can you read the uh, ingredients on it, or the, the? Oh, I can do it from here if you want to pass it. Oh yeah, I forgot my glasses. So oh, I'm, it's, okay, it's probably along the lines of filtered water. Skim milk powder, sugar. <laughs> so, so this one's labelled liquid breakfast. It's yep. chalk ice flavour, and I I had it uh, after I ate, ate some oats for breakfast. So it's my little virtue meter going ping. Yeah, uh, and then I got a bit hungry later in the day. And just about that, what you mentioned, chalk ice flavoured. Um, it's actually particular. There is a two types of uh, when you wake up in the morning. There is a two types of a hot beverage that you would have. So there is a tea person or there's a coffee person. I'm a coffee person. So if somebody serves me a tea in a breakfast, I will um, not very nice. Even my kids will say, Dad, have a coffee. You're not a nice person. <laughs> um, so there's or tea or a coffee type person. That product in particular is a targeted mainly for the tea people um, because it's a chalk. It's a chocolate. Uh, so, they're not, not so, okay. so that's a little bit from the market research background aspects. I'm probably going to struggle reading the ingredients because the packet—it's very, very small, and it's got the amount of energy and so on. But maybe easier. What's your eyesight like, Brittany? <laughs> Rod, you got me on that moment. I forgot my wallet at home, and I forgot my glasses at home. So, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm squinting. I'm, I'm squinting, and it says, uh, "Oh, here we go." Brittany's going to have a look at yeah, it. Yeah, I can read the ingredients. I'll go for it. Here you go. Uh, filtered water, skim milk powder, yep. multidextrin, which is wheat and corn, cane sugar, vegetable fiber, soy protein, vegetable oils, fructose, oat flour, coca flavors, uh, vegetable gums, mineral, and some vitamins added, plus salt. I've got to say that uh, eating it or drinking it, whatever, it was actually not too bad. It didn't seem really sweet. Yeah. And it seems to have, uh, like, uh, wheat biscuits blended into it. So it's yep. it's got a fibre, con- liquid fibre well, content in it. Yeah. So that would be something that you would comfortably classify it under the ultra-processed food product. Definitely. Um, and now there is um, quite a lot of information coming out between uh, types of a processing in a diet uh, and the outcomes on the health. So from the types of a processing on a diet, we can classify them based on the four categories. Yep. So the four categories would be, Brittany, a little bit of a help uh, here. Unprocessed, so that's just your natural fruit and veggies that you pick off the farm. Then you've got your processed, ultra-processed, and then your culinary, yeah, culinary, culinary ingredients. Um, your fat. So it's got added fats, sugar, or salt. And and when we're looking at it from the ultra-processed foods, from the product development aspects, or why are we putting this information in? Uh, just sorry, do you interrupt? Would you, you categorize this? I would categorize this as ultra-processed. Ultra-processed, right. Yeah. Yep. Um, because of the addition of the salt, sugars, uh, and the sugars can be added in in a really neat way. So they don't really necessarily have to say that this is a sucrose. Uh, it can be added as a fructose. Uh, it can be added as dextrose. Um, dextrose 
uh, or it can actually include even the sugar substitutes. So the sugar substitutes such as the saccharin or saccharin or yeah. So there, so there are more stevia, more natural aspects of the stevia, um, more natural uh, sweeteners such as the stevia rather than aspect. Um, so stevia is a natural sweetener. Um, or uh, the synthetic ones such as uh, saccharin and yep. and um, uh, we've got a mental block now, um, but from a, the modification of the the food products is when you look at the product itself, this has to sustain a quite significant amount of time. So the use by date is uh, sometime end of April in next year. So the way it has been actually packaged. So it's got a short, long shelf life. It has to have a long shelf life. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, this type of food product, again, I don't want to demonize any food product because um, this might be all right once in a while, but not as a main source of dietary intake. That is the whole point. I think that's the key message there. So, exactly. And I had it last week, and I thought it was fine. But if you were regularly not eating a proper breakfast and that's having right. this instead... Not a good idea. Not a good idea. And it's not going to be, you know, and it, it can easily form somebody's diet. It can easily form, you know, a staple product in somebody's food uh, or overall dietary intake. Um, but um, from the development perspective, that is not the main aim of this product. It is not the main aim is to actually have it as uh, something that you would have on a run, something that you would just basically pick up off the shelf when you really don't have anything to eat and you're running out of time to consume um, proper sit-down breakfast, uh, but definitely not uh, a food product. Well, speaking of running out of time, we are nearly out of time. And uh, I think the question of why a processed food isn't as good as a natural food, that's probably a big topic and maybe one that you'll come back and we can we can talk that one over. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Love, to have, love to be back, man. Well, we, we always have lots of fun here on Fuzzy Logic now. Uh, we have a companion column. Oh, and just quickly, uh, Brittany and, and Annette, you wrote us a uh, one about protein. Uh, are all proteins the same? Just uh, in about a minute, can you give me the very brief summary of that? <laughs> all right, so the very brief summary of it. Um, not all proteins are not the same. And when we talk about the proteins, we always think about one, all of them as a one bigger category um, or being the same. But it all depends on where do they come from, what is their composition based from the amino acid perspective, whether the whole proteins uh, means that they come from the animal food sources or whether they're plant, so, plant um, sources where they might be missing out on a particular amino acid. Uh, and then we really have to think about uh, the protein complementation where consuming are two different products with a different amino acid content. And then, Brittany, you were saying earlier about the Mediterranean diet being the mix of plant and animal, and so you want to get the right balance of uh, plant-based protein versus meat-based protein. Absolutely. Yep, yep definitely. Yeah. So maybe that's something we can write on the different, you know, whey, casein, um, proteins, soy protein. Yeah. be another article we can write up. Yeah. Well, uh, we that was in our Ask Fuzzy column that appears in the Canberra Times. And, in fact, we go out across a range of regional papers in Australian community media. So that's pretty cool. And I had to run one today again about core flutes. You see, core flutes, the, the political advertising is all around the Canberra streets at the moment, getting a lot of, oh. of attention right now. So I had some fun with that. Uh, what is a core flute? 
uh, it's both a concept and a physical thing. So it's trying to uh, propagate uh, the idea that, oh, Rod's a great candidate. We should have Rod in the Legislative Assembly, uh, handsome and all that kind of stuff. I can vouch for that. Everybody vote for Rod. (laughs) (laughs) It might work, except Rod is probably none of those things and not a candidate. But uh, anyway, the core flutes. And I think we have some more on the way, uh, Nanad and uh, Brittany. I look forward to getting those from you. Oh, better go. Thank you for your company today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Rod. And Brittany Harridan and Nanette Damotsky are nutrition researchers at the University of Canberra here on Fuzzy Logic.